Welcome to the Marxist Think Tank podcast, an attempt to look at the world from a class-conscious perspective and to build. The violence affected us and we were really, really in running battles every day. We didn't go to school and enjoy school normally for the whole day. We knew that either at night or in the morning, we go past the battle or we are fighting in that battle in order to go to school. Mm. So so we were used to the violence. Uh, we were burying our comrades every week. And mm. we... have died, 10 killed in a stampede during looting at this supermarket. We don't know where to, to Toronto. It's very much devastating. In past days, looting has spread from stores to factories and warehouses, ransacking and rioting in South Africa's worst violence since apartheid. There's no rice here, stock is finished. I don't know what I'm going to eat with my child. I got this small rice for me. Hey. Even in my life, I can't buy this small thing like this. Of soldiers out on the streets in response to these stunning images that have shocked South Africans. Looting on a massive scale. Windows smashed. Hundreds of stores set on fire. Police often outnumbered and overwhelmed. Not expecting any scent from a- anyone. But I'm thinking of this boxer. I'm thinking of that mall. You know, where, where will I find the bread next time? The situation is still quite tense, and we are hearing reports that there could be further violence tonight. So you can't go anywhere. It's painful, and I don't know what can I say about that. This is not our fault. I don't know what happened to the government. We don't know, but this is not our fault. Protests started with the jailing of former South African President Jacob Zuma last Wednesday, accused of Violence corruption. Was sparked by the jailing of former President Jacob Zuma, but then widened into anger over poverty and inequality. Was sparked by the arrest of former President Jacob Zuma, under investigation for corruption and fraud, but still popular among many poor South Africans. The instigators want to spread instability in the country. Late tonight, the president called the violence a coordinated, deliberate attack intended to destabilize the country and vowed to bring those responsible to justice. It says a week of violence and looting was planned and coordinated. Sil Ramaphosa says forces have identified 12 ringleaders and he has deployed 25,000 soldiers onto the streets to help defuse the situation. At least Africans know that within the ruling African National Congress Party, there have been divisions and factions for many, many years. And right now, those divisions seem to center around two men, the former president, Jacob Zuma, and Cyril Ramaphosa as well. So it seems to be a fight or wrangle within that party over who controls the party. A positive spin on the story is that the community is starting to take care of itself and form community security watches. Why must the cost be so high? 
Okay. Uh, welcome everyone to the Marxist Think Tank podcast and we are joined again this week uh, with Fred, Fred Mokoko from Soweto in South Africa. Welcome back Fred. Uh, thanks Richard. Great, it's great to be here with you Fred and we are picking up from where we left off uh, on our last episode. So Fred was obviously explaining to us and talking to us about the struggle about the struggle against apartheid in South Africa and and obviously what he experienced, what he saw, and what he did. Um, where we left it off, obviously, we discussed um, how, for you, Fred, how you had gotten into the struggle, some of the tactics, some of the things of the struggle, what it felt like, what it looked like in Soweto. You know, the courier system of how people used to communicate, um, how apartheid operated in terms of the police and the army, um, you know, going into high schools, how schools were separated under the Bantu education system. And then we talked about how things, you know, emerged, how things, sorry, how things evolved and with, with consciousness, the struggle becoming more, um, you know, pointed, becoming more, I suppose, militant, you know, growing, uh, the, the momentum. And obviously the release of Mandela coming out and how the student bodies that you were in, in Soweto, obviously also uh, uh, were a big point of organization, how the cells, the NC cells organized. And from as far as I'm aware, we were about going into 1990. And the you said, you explained how this was actually a darker time as you went into that era, into 1990. And I, I think we're probably talking about the IFP here and the struggles and the third forces that the, the apartheid regime also implemented. So I'll let you carry on from there then, Fred. Please tell us the rest of your story. Um, well, this is how I will start. Um, in most cases, when I was doing my political education workshops, whenever I got the opportunity, I would explain that the 90s were very rough. It was easy to be lost in the detail. And that characterization comes because as Earlier indicated, it was the most uh, darkest time where there was the most violence visited uh, on people. And that violence culminated into running battles um, with the enemy that uh, is historical but was now hiding behind um, black people, who um, some of them. Uh, were used even before uh, 1990s, just that 1990 became the culmination of um, what had earlier been characterized as black-on-black -black violence. I'm told Oliver Tambo uh, would have characterized that situation as the poor fighting the poor over poverty. <laughs> now, this is the times when you have uh, people who uh, ordinarily are part of the working class mm. who are supposed to be uh, fighting for the same interests as the working class. 
but because they had been living in uh, what in their minds were called compounds in the townships, they were called hostels. Um, they became a community that was divided from uh, the people's battles in the townships. So in my own view, it was easy for them to be used. Some of them uh, would have come straight from uh, rural areas, uh, coming to Johannesburg to come and look for employment. And they found this violence going on. So it was easy for them to be confused um, by the enemy and to be used. But for us, what was uh, painful is that Mandela is out. Um, you know, I also say we released him from prison. Um, when other people want to argue that Mandela liberated us, we always correct them that no. Uh, Mandela himself had uh, actually, um, on the 13th of uh, February 1990, had actually indicated that it is not the kings and generals, but the ordinary people. Mm. And we were part of the mobilization of those ordinary people. Um, so, for us, that was the real picture of now that Mandela is out, then we are going to go to uh, what the ANC characterized the seizure of power, one man, one vote, the universal mm. franchise. And mm. achieving the universal franchise will get us into political office, and assuming political office will enable us to change the laws, um, to be in particular consistent with what we wanted to achieve, um, which uh, essentially was the, the goals uh, or the 10 freedoms that uh, we always rallied uh, people towards the 10 freedoms of the Freedom Charter. Mm -hmm. Just so that people are familiar with the Freedom Charter. So uh, let me see if I'm describing this correctly. The Freedom Charter is, is the document that was grafted in, I think, 1955 um, by uh, the only, I suppose, uh, moment where all of South Africa was consulted. Uh, you know, churches and different communities across the country were um, consulted and asked, and they drafted this grand document where everyone essentially contributed to what kind of, um, uh, you know, society they wanted to have in South Africa. Uh, and it had a bunch of demands, many demands, obviously, um, the, the vote, um, also stuff about land, about the ownership of the economy. And that document in 1955, obviously, the apartheid government was against it, but it became the sort of rallying document for the struggle and then also became a big part of the constitution of today, of what was the founding of the constitution of today. Is, is that correct? Is that a correct description? Well, it's the correct characterization. You know? Yeah. Um, but essentially what the... Uh, we were looking forward to is the part where it says no government can just claim authority unless it is based on the will of the people. And then it says the people shall govern. So we were looking forward to the people governing. Mm -hmm. um, there was nothing exciting for us than the moment where all of us get to choose um, who becomes uh, our government. Mm. So Apartheid had realized by then already, I mean, even after the Battle of Kutukunoval and the, mm. uh, the concessions, the five country con concessions that were made, um, Apartheid knew that um, they were on the back foot, they had to withdraw. But I suppose um, those who were 
uh, in the illegitimate apartheid government thought that they should squash the earth mm. um, and make it very difficult for um, ANC to to get into power. But when they realized that the ANC had actually consolidated its mobilization and it was uh, a government in waiting, they then decided that um, they must uh, try and get certain concessions for themselves, which is why the negotiations process um, was entered into. And that negotiations process um, was supposed to be a platform through which we could arrive at the people's government. Mm. Now, the tactics that were used were not always above board. Um, we were experiencing violence in the township, in the street, in our schools. Mm. Um, you know, when you find a situation where even those who were untrained had access to guns uh, and they brought them to school. Mm. Remember that we were the leadership. So it was important for the ANC to also continue in its uh, uh, training uh, towards activists because the danger that uh, we all faced was that we were involved in a war that was unplanned. It might not have been recognized as a war, but uh, to use one of, uh, in one of the meetings, um, one student uh, characterized the situation when we asked, do we know what do we want war? And he stood up and he said, um, why is it that we are asked that we want war? We kill people every day, is that not war? And of course he was, he was talking about uh, in the entire Soweto, in one area or the other, students would be involved in the defense of either students or youth or ordinary people in the township who went about their business. And through uh, those uh, defense actions, uh, we found that uh, from time to time people died. And some of the students who would have been engaged in that action, uh, would some of them would die. We lost a number of uh, uh, young people, students. There was a house somewhere in White City uh, where the entire family was wiped out. And a child survived because he had chosen to go and play next door. Mm. To this day, that child um, has been traumatized so much that he's nothing in life. Mm. Uh, that is how bad this thing was. There were times when they were running battles in houses nearer to, to, nearer to hostels where families had to run away and leave their houses. Um, for for years, I'm not saying they leave their houses tonight, they come back tomorrow, no, for years. Mm. They would have run away because of uh, the war, which was never recognized as a war, really, because it happened um, in the process of apartheid retreating and then using uh, hostels and uh, agent provocateurs to foment that violence. So, mm. how we participate, and, and it was it was politically driven. I mean, it was driven by Inkata, um, and when the ANC 
uh, decided to um, allow space for MK to train um, self-defense units. Uh, the IFP was being trained uh, to have self-protection units. Mm. And they were not trained with AKs. They were trained with uh, guns from the state. Mm. Uh, FN, FN rifles, your R4s, R5s. So the clearly, IFP was using, using apartheid state weapons. Yeah, their, their, their people were using uh, state-sponsored weapons. Mm. Um, and we all know, I mean, the Goldstone Commission did an investigation and it was found that indeed people who were in the hostel, some of them were armed to the teeth and they were involved in the violence. Um, but nobody wanted to own up to the violence that was happening in the township between township people and hostel people, which was the most uh, brutal and violent. Mm. So when when the the soldiers retreated out of Soweto into the barracks, they needed a reason to come back. And that reason was uh, state-sponsored violence. And we, we had nothing. I mean, we had been working with sticks and stones, mm. a Molotov cocktail, but now this was real. Um, we, we had self-made weapons. Uh, they, uh, there was something called a, a, a quash. You know, a quash mm -hmm. is a one-bullet one self-made weapon. Mm -hmm. um, and we were armed in the township. Yeah, how, and what, what exactly? So, what would you? How would you make a quash? Is it like a some some gunpowder and a basic barrel, or what? No, it's a. You take a piece of steel and make a makeshift gun, and then um, um, make a hammer with a spring um, pieces from motor vehicles, sometimes from the old mattress beds, um, huh. some sometimes from the you know the small gadgets that used to use springs? You would remove them from there and then use a steel, make a hammer. And it's a mechanism that you use by hand. Uh -huh. uh, so like when you are um, shooting an arrow or something, so it's the same mechanism that you do. Um, okay. So the steel to the hammer with the correct size of a bullet, it would go out like a regular bullet. Oh, so then you put a normal bullet. You would put a normal bullet in the chamber in the pipe. Yeah, yeah. You put a normal bullet in the chamber, but some of those things were rudimentary and very dangerous. Mm. Mm. Um, so the, then the process matured because some of the criminals who uh, the police were were giving arms would sell those arms. <laughs> you know mm. the small guns that uh, came from the police. They would sell them. So you ended up with a situation where even people that you had not anticipated that they would be involved uh, in the struggle mm. began to be involved because uh, some of their family members or relatives would have been killed. So they felt their blood was boiling. They felt that they had to return the favor. Mm. Um, so for some of us, we were fortunate because having been linked with... Uh, um, struggle operations. We then received the uh, proper training, you know. Um, firstly, Umkonto did not believe in arming people. 
mm-hmm. um, because it was a very dangerous thing to do. Mm. But it believed that in the process of um, war and battles that had ensued, the right people had to have the right training in order to defend the people. And unfortunately, it was not always uh, straight and direct uh, Mm. who received the training. But most of us who would have been involved with um, uh, the work of uh, student activism and so on, um, became part of the court of people who would be trained. Uh, you would be trained on how to rescue people and take them to a self safe place. Mm. You trained on how do you retreat uh, in the process where you identify that uh, the enemy is seriously armed and ordinary people may be affected. You would be trained on how do you um, tactically. Mm. Um, defend people without necessarily um, escalating a, a battle to mm-hmm. what it, it shouldn't be. So self-defense units were really trained not to advance and kill. Mm-hmm. They were trained to defend and move people to safe places because in the at the back of our minds, um, um, and, and, and the training would always uh, involve the fact that all people of South Africa are our people. Mm. So when you identify the enemy, you must be clear that the enemy is uh, this person who necessarily uh, wants to kill people for fun or they want to kill people to defend apartheid. And Mm. be that as it may, you are not allowed to go and attack them. Mm. You are only allowed to defend the people. So, so that's that's the type of the parameters that the ANC had done because it was taking responsibility, I suppose, because you then have to become the leader of the society. Now, if the society is too wounded, uh, like we are, it's going to be very tedious for you to be able to put the building blocks of a normal um, society that is well governed. Mm. And unfortunately. Not everybody was on the same footing with what the ANC had put. Uh, there would have been threats by other uh, right-wing African um, paramilitary forces that threatened civil war. Um, and this, this is what was interesting. At one point, we were called to a meeting at Soweto. I think we were debating, and that meeting. Uh, was about the fourth or fifth meeting to try and get uh, Soweto students and youth to come down because the violence affected us and we were really, really in running battles uh, every day. We didn't go to school and enjoy school normally for the whole day. We knew that either at night or in the morning, we go past the battle or we are fighting in that battle in order to go to school. Mm. So so we were used to the violence. Uh, we were burying our comrades every week and mm. we, we decided that uh, we're not going to listen to the ANC. It's their decision that the armed struggle is uh, suspended. Uh, we are facing the enemy every day and the enemy doesn't ask questions. They get into our schools, they take children, 
uh, including those people who were uh, sponsored by the state as gangsters to terrorize um, uh, comrades and school children. So we had to to fight criminals and to fight the apartheid police, as well as to fight the the so-called self-protection units that went into our homes and attacked our people. So we're called into a meeting somewhere at the uh, and we were fortunate we were addressed by Conrad uh, Tabombeki, uh, who who took time to take us through. I mean, when he went into the meeting, we were angry. We insulted um, the leadership of the NC, and he came in calmly and uh, briefed us about what was happening. Um, and he indicated that, look, we were dealing with the project of seizing power. Um, we must seize power. And this uh, everyday battles that you are fighting, these uh, attacks uh, that uh, were happening uh, in the townships, people getting killed and people claiming that it is the third force, were a deliberate ploy to take us to a civil war. Mm. And, and because we were seen as actively participating, um, it appeared that we too were not interested in what the ANC was pursuing. So um, the reason why we are being engaged is to actually put us at the level of the same footing as the NEC of the ANC to say we should not be a reason mm -hmm. for some people to mobilize against the seizure of power. That apartheid is on the retreat, they understood that they are on the retreat, that um, they would use every excuse to delay their exit from power. Mm. And from that day onwards, that's when we started understanding why politics were important. I mean, we were, we were being uh, taught politics uh, and we did not necessarily understand when there was battles every day. But until Tabombeki came and explained that to us, um, the way he explained, we were overjoyed in the meeting. We went out and explained ourselves uh, to our own uh, student bodies at schools, uh, to our own teachers and principals, because some of them were really aloof. And it, it became another moment of pride to be, to be linked to uh, the struggles of the people through the African National Congress, because then you could see the bigger picture. Is that how is that how he did it then? Is that so? Obviously, Tabu Mbeki is is obviously the individual who came on. He went on to become president, obviously after Mandela. Just for the audience who are not familiar, perhaps. Um, yeah, so at that is, is that time he was. Yeah. yeah, no, he he came there uh, smoking a pipe, driving a BMW 3 Series, speaking <laughs> Um, but you know when when he he gave the the history of the struggle, there's somewhere where he explained why um, in Soweto it would be very difficult if a civil war was to start. The SATF would immediately deploy its forces and annihilate people in Soweto. And he explained how bridges, uh, I mean, how freeways and roads were built uh, to really 
assist the apartheid government to quickly reach the townships. I mean, there were unexplained spaces. And he explained that these spaces could equally be used as a, um, a temporary military site mm. uh, to go on a campaign to kill people. He explained mm. how uh, during apartheid times, arms were being stolen. Um, and they were not being stolen by people who did not know how to shoot. They were stolen by people who were in the machinery, uh, who were taught how to shoot. And because of that uh, policy of military conscription, almost all uh, white children um, were taught how to uh, participate in war. So on the basis of that explanation and the understanding of um, a, a civilian um, catastrophe that might happen. We, we had to understand that, well, it will not be in our best interest to continue uh, using the, the attacks mm. by uh, people who were encouraged by what was characterized as the third force, which essentially was the apartheid government. Mm. It would not be correct for us to use that as uh, an excuse to continue fighting. In fact, it was clear that we had to change our tactics and use mass mobilization as uh, the most effective instrument. So we really changed the tactics. We moved from participating in the fighting battles and we then started organizing uh, mass rallies as well as uh, uh, marches. Mm. Um, in our, on our part, we were using um, the exam fee process um, that uh, matriculants used to pay an exam fee and that exam fee was not uh, for purposes of administration. It was used as a discriminatory instrument from uh, allowing poor children who came from poor families participating in writing an exam and getting metric certificates right. and the going to university. Right. Yes. So if you could afford, because there were two amounts, I remember in 1992, one amount was 120 for people who were going to write to try and get into university. Hmm. And then, um, then um, the, the other amount was 99 rands for hmm. people who just wanted to prove that they wrote metric and they passed. Hmm. 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 That's, that's how it was. And in our view, uh, we were able to register a victory that year because we moved the price of 120 and 99 rands uh, to actually 99 rands for everybody who's going to write metric. <laughs> but that victory was also a sign that apartheid was under pressure. <laughs> so we exerted more pressure. Uh, mm. We went on on uh, uh, strikes. We there was a point where we shut down the city. Mm. Um, so mass mobilization became an important instrument, and it then brought attention back from um, the running battles that we had. We still battled. We still fought, mm. but um, the bigger picture for us were in the student bodies uh, was that 
it was easy for us to mobilize the people using our issues. Mm. No school fees, uh, mm. no exam fee. And at one point, um, whilst we were fighting uh, seriously, uh, the attacks on our schools were not necessarily dying down. But we also had to demonstrate uh, a position of moral authority. Uh, we no longer engaged in gun battles when we were under attack. We would secure uh, the people who had come and then uh, we moved at night uh, find find them because there were people who knew uh, who stayed in the hostels themselves and there were students in our schools who could tell us, no, this was so-and-so who came. Mm -hmm. uh, we can find him. So that's how we moved. Uh, we could find them. Uh, so that we reduced uh, the level of uh, fighting, gun mm. toting, and so mm. on and so forth. So in that, in that case, there, Fred. I mean, would you then be would you be going out and taking out the you know the the the, the guys who had been attacking uh, the community? Would you be arresting them, or would you be you know uh, taking them out? You know, we we were taught at some point also to educate the enemy. Mm. Because sometimes the enemy did not know uh, why they were in the battle. Mm -hmm. So that was uh, a possibility. It depended on how you wanted us to engage you. Mm. But in most cases, many people that we went to find, um, we were able to engage them and they became part of the people who would say no, but uh, violence must end because then they started understanding from where we were moving. Mm. Um, that is how we were able to effectively use apartheid propaganda against uh, the apartheid government because because the ANC was consistent. Um, we are not fighting our people. Uh, they would even say the white people are our people as well. You know, so we must be careful about what are the things that we are going to do as we advance. So we were not a bunch of angry young people who went about uh, uh, killing people willy-nilly yeah. and so on. In most cases, the advanced um, um, conti contingent in us uh, was was about turning things around in a way that was going to reduce violence and elevate the ANC to a position mm. of moral authority because at the time we had made the point uh, mm. that the ANC was advanced, it had mobilized society, um, they were just uh, a government in waiting. And all of the things that uh, were required, including... Um, explaining to people for instance there was a document called the harari declaration which mm -hmm. also was explained by tabombek in that meeting we, we took that uh, bold step and explained that uh, when the ready to govern came out we took a bold step and explained that to the youth and mm -hmm. to people who were closer to us when the rdp uh, was released as a our instrument of uh, fighting elections and getting into government. 
social policy that we are bringing into government. We took initiative of going around explaining that. So, mm. what is it that I'm saying? I'm saying, although the violence was at a heightened level, more people died between 1990 and 1994. Mm. Um, we were able to turn things around in a manner that assisted us from um, participating in violence, but to winning the hearts and minds of the people and really right. focusing them on the seizure of power. Right. That, that's, that's, that's exactly what I was going to describe or ask you if, if it was an accurate description. Is that, yes, you went from um, organizing in student bodies or being organized into student bodies and other bodies, um, you know, uh, agitating, handing out literature, speaking to people about the struggle, getting into armed struggle, uh, getting into fights, and then combating the third force, the, the apartheid state-sponsored um, gangs and other actors that you described, as well as obviously then the IFP, which we'll, we'll go a bit more into in a moment. But you kind of went from an agitational and organizational sort of mass movement initially to organize, then obviously into conflict, uh, armed conflict with, with various elements. But then in order to get further support, you guys went back in a sense towards the mass mobilization, towards the, the bread and butter issues, the sort of mass line kind of stuff of, of going to the people, speaking to them about your policies and speaking to them about what they wanted. So you, there was a kind of back and forth between the armed struggle, the, the quote unquote uh, violent revolutionary stuff and the more, I suppose, um, uh, softer politics. Is that, is that a correct description then? Well, it was not necessarily softer politics. Hmm. Um, because, like I said, the battles were still going on. Mm. Uh, even before the elections, I mean, there were people who went to the ANC offices. A certain number of people was, were gunned down. Um, that's how much the violence was, you know. Um, there were people who uh, threatened people in Fentersdorf, Lechtenberg, and so on, the right wing. Um, um, African right-wing militia that was there. So, the choice that we had made was um, the choice of um, informing the people and constantly uh, in increasing the pressure, mm. undermining apartheid, because we were made aware that if we continue um, uh, using the barrel of the gun, we may undermine the advance that uh, at the time the ANC and the mass democratic movement and the uh, allied forces and the international community had advanced. Mm. So, so it was a conscious choice we made because we were now informed of the things that before did not seem to be clear to us. Mm. And believe you me, I mean, the ANC was, um, was a formidable organization. Um, we, we admire the ANC because of how it made an effort to reach out to communities and actually engage them in the ideas of struggle to an extent that communities could take their own initiatives 
in advance what the messages that the ANC was bringing. And for that, uh, we did not want to pay the price of losing at the um, at the at the goal line, mm. uh, where everything must culminate into South Africans voting and us having new decisions. Mm. Unfortunately, mm. what helped uh, was not something that we at all anticipated. The death of Krisani. Uh, became yeah became another point boiling point for South Africans mm. um, and the leadership of the ANC took the hard end of the stick and actually went uh, down to the ground to explain what was happening. Um, well, let, let, before we get to that, Fred, because that, that's a, that's a very big one. I think I think I would like to come back to that in a second. So, but just for um for the audience. Obviously, particularly on the IFP. So I just want to finish with this IFP discussion. Um, yeah. IFP, of course, now the IFP is in Carter Freedom Party, um, a Zulu nationalist outfit. Um, obviously, in a sense, they played a right-wing role, a sort of black right-wing role, in the same way that you had Afrikaner nationalism. Is, is that a correct description? Or is that how you saw uh, their role? And, and, and what do you think their ambitions were? In, in, in that moment, in between 90 and 1994? Well, what I can say is that they were, they were traversing between a right-wing liberal um, and right-wing federalist, but they were also a liberal conservative, but they were right-wing. That's the characterization that you will give them. And them being right-wing was not based on uh, policy decisions and policy imperatives. It was based on, I have built this thing called uh, uh, the IFP. When it started, of course, I had received uh, uh, guidelines as well as uh, advice from the ANC to build a cultural movement, which is why the IFP at its inception was using the colors of the ANC, black, green, and gold. To this day, they still have those colors. When they became the IFP, they added white and red. Mm -hmm. But if you were to sit down and look at the colors of the ANC, you would see black, green, and gold. Mangosu uh, Tutelez himself was a member of the Youth League and a member of the ANC. Mm. His grandfather was a founder member of the African National Congress, including the grandfather of uh, the late King Zulitin, mm. was a founder member of the African National Congress, King Solomon. Mm. Now, now, the IFP uh, became disinterested in what was being pursued by the ANC because they had participated somehow in uh, what was then called um, Zululand. Mm. Um, it was um, somehow a semi-Bantustan, uh, mm -hmm. precisely because Mangosu um, Tuktelis um, did not necessarily want it to become a Bantustan. Mm. Uh, but when the ANC came to power, he was then convinced that if we do not have a federal government in South Africa, uh, the rights that he has been enjoying 
uh, and the Zulu monarch are going to be taken away by the African National Congress. Mm. So he then used that as a, a key uh, demand uh, for him to either be part of South Africa or to ask for a federalist arrangement in South Africa, which to us uh, did not make sense. We didn't mm. want a federal government. We wanted a unitary uh, government. Of course, we were not in favor of provinces. Mm. Um, we wanted uh, 14 regional uh, governments. Um, and those regional governments would take the form of municipalities. So um, mm. the two positions, according to him, uh, were not necessarily... Um, um, meeting one another they were opposed to one another and that's according to him and he then insisted on us having international mediation so the IFP as an organization started in earnest fighting for space when Mandela became president when Mandela came out of prison mm, out of prison not president yeah sorry yeah Yes, when Mandela came out of prison, then the IFP started fighting for its own space. And in fact, it was a strategy by all uh, Bantustan leaders, except for Bantu Ulumis. Mm. Um, they wanted to assert themselves and started asking themselves what's going to happen in the new South Africa, what's going mm. to be our position and so on. So the ANC, through its own structure had to deal with that situation and many of the people, some of them in the Bantustans would have been members of the underground machinery of the ANC and they were able to do what uh, they were supposed to do. Another problem that came was that then the UDF had to be dissolved because the ANC was now in, inside the country. Right. So um, you don't think the IFP had any um, bigger ambitions than that? The, the Zulu nationalism uh, of the IFP uh, was only trying to sort of fight for uh, to claim to stake out its own federal sort of space within a, a continued new version of of, of the Bantustan system uh, under some sort of uh, a, a different political dispensation than the one that they that they were worried about having, which would have been a unitary yeah. government. That is exactly what they wanted. Mm. Uh, they wanted. Uh, they, they, they were using words like self-determination. Mm -hmm. uh, they wanted a federal state. They wanted to have their own constitution uh, and so on and so forth. So we then said, but the, in all honesty, we were not going to um, accept any federal system of governance. And even how the ANC has, had posited um, the matters that uh, were related to how people are going to be governed, it was always about having a unitary state. But uh, in the pre-1994 negotiation process, just uh, before the elections, the ANC then accepted uh, this thing of um, nine provinces. Mm -hmm. And it made sense that then you would have uh, Zululand and Natal becoming KwaZulu-Natal. Um, and then it made sense that the provinces would have um, 
autonomy, uh, not independence. Yeah. Um, they would become under one unitary state, but they would have autonomy to uh, run their own budget and their own programs within the province. So the IFP, uh, in as much as it could not be appeased, but they then ended up participating in the elections because they were saying they were not going to participate in the elections. And then there were other people who said they were not going to participate, which uh, was uh, General Feldhune and his right wing and conservative people, uh, who were also informed that, no, at first we are going to have... um, um, a government of national unity which would run for five years which uh, that would be called a transitional period mm. uh, and this transitional period will be established under uh, the transitional executive council and then the transitional executive council would be governed under transitional act 200 of 1993 mm. so that interim constitution was able to assist in relation to the violence that was visited on people. So from around the country, it really subsided to a few mm. areas. I know that in East Rand, they were still experiencing it. And I know that uh, in KZN, they were still experiencing it. But mm. um, to an extent, um, we were able to uh, understand that uh, we will go to elections, there will be free and fair elections. Um, uh, as soon as that announcement was made, we then started working on uh, what are the proposals that we are making mm-hmm. to go into government. And that was when um, the ANC is ready to govern and the proposals that were done by the alliance structures, COSATU, Communist Party, SANCO, mm-hmm. South right. African Council of Churches and other peoples made contributions and we came out with what then became the RDP. RDP. So yeah, you, you, now we're going into the, yeah, into, as you say, into the election, into the governance. Um, and, and you just mentioned the South African Communist Party there. And so yeah, let, let's go let's go back to the Chris Hani incident. But but obviously we'll, we'll try and make that a, a bit broader as well. Um, I mean, obviously the role of, of, of communists in the struggle uh, is, is, is probably quite long. It probably goes back, you know, to the to the early, early parts of the struggle. Um, but you mentioned earlier before Chris Hani, you mentioned the Battle of Quito Carnival. So obviously for our listeners, um, that's the battle which uh, I think 1988, 1989, um, where the Cubans and the Angolans uh, held off against the apartheid uh, army and basically defeated them in, in Angola. And it was a, a, a big moment for, for, for the struggle. So I just want you to, perhaps you can describe what, what the significance of that battle, the winning of that battle of, the, of Quito Carnival. Uh, what was the significance of that? And then the role of communists generally, um, you know, at this point in the struggle, uh, how, how big was their contribution? Look, um, let me start here. The ANC and the Communist Party um, struck an alliance that not only worked in the ANC, but it worked internationally. And given the the ability of the ANC to organize, it became number one enemy of uh, imperialism because it was uh, able to, the ANC has always been able to put uh, enemies into one room. 
and unite their views. Um, it did so with the OAU. It did so with uh, organizing the non-aligned movement, party-to-party -party relations, um, and focus on what was important. So working with um, the Communist Party, the ANC would be able to reach uh, Communist International. It would be able to reach the working class um, organizations around the world, working with SACTU, South African Congress of Trade Unions. Um, it was able to build the uh, relations. Um, now, so that, that is the, the first danger that mm. you are able to work with people that everybody uh, gets convinced that they shouldn't work with them. And which is why the NC would have been labeled a terrorist organization, even if it didn't believe in terrorist ideas. So, as a result of that, I mean, the NC was given a base in Angola mm. uh, by Dr. Agostino Neto. Mm. In recognition of how Tambo was able to provide advice to all the political organizations there on building a united front that was going to win them uh, the battle against colonialism. And Dr. Agostino Neto, on becoming um, the president of Angola, invited the ANC to have bases in Angola. At the time, the ANC only had bases in Tanzania. Some of them, uh, it had areas where it could operate in Mozambique. Yeah, so, so that was in the 70s. Uh, so the ANC then had training bases in Angola. Uh, it could, uh, particularly towards the 1976, it could train a mass number of people. It could direct people to other areas. Um, and then uh, also the fact that um, um, it was accepted as part of the organizations that sit in the OAU, it had access to um, other resources from uh, presidents of other countries. Uh, so it was then given uh, an office also in Zambia, in Lusaka, where it operated from. So it moved its headquarters to Lusaka. Now, what does it mean? It means that uh, because Angola uh, had chosen to become a communist state, um, the alliance that the ANC had with the uh, Socialist International and communist countries, as well as uh, working class organizations around the world, assisted to uh, solidify relations with uh, Russia, Cuba, uh, China, uh, those countries that were in pursuit of uh, socialism. And even how uh, we became uh, oriented we were oriented through Marxism-Leninism. Mm. Um, so that's how the, the communists uh, were influential to us. For instance, we adopted uh, the National Democratic Revolution introduced by Lenin for the first time uh, in what uh, was called state and revolution. Um, mm. We And in the NDR, we characterize um, the enemy through that um, um, instrument and framework and identify that we are fighting an enemy 
Uh, that is implementing what was called colonialism of a special type, where the colonized and the colonized um, were staying in the same country. That colonialism, as we identified it before, was no longer in existence when South Africa declared that it was a republic in, on the 31st of uh, May 1961. So our, our worldview and thinking is socialist in orientation. But be that as it may, the ANC remains a liberation movement. And the communists uh, were instrumental in all the milestones that the ANC gained. When the ANC was accepted um, into at, attending to its uh, issues through the OAU, uh, mm. Commonwealth, United Nations, Vivian Reddy and them, the communists were always there with us. And even countries that were in pursuit of socialist republics um, were always um, uh, fighting alongside the ANC, including social democratic parties uh, that you found in Scandinavia and uh, in Britain. Now, that's the influence of the Communist Party. So the, the biggest danger became that this continuous influence of the Communist Party would not uh, make the ANC into what um, the imperialists wanted the ANC to be. Yeah. Um, so the ANC will not uh, at any given point become a capitalist institution that is required uh, to be by the imperialists. And as a result, it had to be characterized as a terrorist organization. Yeah. Now, because it was characterized as a terrorist organization, then it had to be pursued through uh, extraordinary methods, which uh, included uh, arming people that were against the ANC, using that as an excuse. Yes. So Quito Kunoval, um, which is in Angola, mm. became, became a target because it had ANC bases. It was attacked in the 70s when the ANC arrived there. And in the 80s, it was attacked because it was seen as a, a point where if it had been uh, destroyed, you would have weakened the ANC's ability to advance because it was clear in the 80s that the ANC had advanced uh, inside South Africa. And repressive laws had to be escalated, state of emergencies had to be used. Now, so Quito Kunoval was uh, that uh, strategic outpost where uh, the Cubans had guarded it, um, where the Angolans were jealous about it, and where the ANC uh, had found a home where they could really train revolutionaries uh, who would alter the course of uh, the apartheid uh, history that we were uh, faced with. Mm. Now, this is uh, the significance because then Grisani went out of the country, became part of Nkonto Wesizwe, became its foremost uh, um, commander who did uh, sterling work. Mm. And at the time when um, he came back into South Africa, he was one of the most wanted people by the apartheid government. Mm -hmm. uh, in fact, uh, they wanted him isolated 
to say, no, we can speak to so-and-so and so-and-so, but we can't speak to this one. Joslov mm. was well, um, uh, and many other uh, comrades were in the Communist Party. Mm -hmm. But the ANC did not view the Communist Party as an outside organization. Because many members of the Communist Party were, in any case, members of the ANC. Was uh, Mandela a member of the, the Communist Party? Um, yeah, there, there is that Roman allegation. But this is how I explain it, because I don't want to bring it down to which individual. Uh -huh. Okay. Man Mandela would not have been trained in China if he was not. Uh, but I'm just passing. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, and he started interacting with the, the concept of communism um, early on after he had joined the ANC. He was opposed to it when he was uh, at Forte, but mm -hmm. he started understanding uh, and was therefore recruited with other comrades. And he, may he was trained in China, is that correct? Oh, yeah. No, 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 uh, not him. Him, he was trained in Algeria. Algeria. Um, yeah, his comrades that he was with in the high command, some of them were then sent to China to train. I see. I see. Uh, Mandela was trained by Ahmed Mandela. Hmm. Um, in Algeria. In Algeria, okay. Yeah, and Ahmed Mandela was trained by Ernesto Che Guevara. I see. I see. So, so uh, the training that Che Guevara did in the early 60s, I mean, uh, even in the Democratic Republic of Congo, ending up in Bolivia, he went around training people in guerrilla warfare. Mm. But um, the, the most important part of what I'm saying is that Mandela was linked to the Communist Party. Uh, by communists who also served in the high command. Um, there's nowhere where there is an admission that Mandela was a communist. But if you if you do your work properly, you will be able to find um, that these actions were in actual fact um, linked to that. <laughs> it would have been important because Mandela at the time was uh, leading uh, Umkonto Wesizwe. Mm. Yeah, so Umkonto Wesizwe did not have any basis anywhere for them to be able to uh, get support and amass weapons and so on. It was only communist countries that were waiting to say, look, we can provide these things. We just want to know who you are, where you come from, what do you do? and what's the significance of the struggle in South Africa. So, um, for me, that is what um, uh, pointed to the communist in Nelson Mandela. Mm. Um, mm. The communist in Sulu, the communist in uh, other people who were declared communists at the time. Mm. Um, but the, the key thing is that then Mandela um, um, would have survived uh, and went to prison 
uh, which means uncontroversies when it started uh, having bases outside. Those bases became possible because of the link of the ANC to the Communist Party and um, uh, SACTU, mm. uh, which was organizing uh, workers. They, they also became possible because of Africanist countries who themselves were not necessarily opposed to mm. communism. So you would have had Krizani uh, being able to uh, become a member of Nkonto Esizwen, um, become a member of the Communist Party, um, pursue ideas of the ANC and the mm. Communist Party. He became uh, one of the foremost um, uh, spokespersons uh, for socialism in South Africa. Mm. So, so that's, the, yeah, Cub that, that is, the Cubans inside. themselves became linked with the ANC in Angola uh, through the struggles of ordinary people, but also because of the socialist orientation that the ANC was pursuing. So um, they would have uh, protected the ANC throughout. Now, in October 1987, um, Quito Kunoval became the battleground. And it becomes the battleground because of the issues that I related before, the links between the ANC and the socialist republics yeah. and communist ideas. And then um, to finally, because the the imperialist uh, governments that supported apartheid yeah. did so because they wanted to consolidate their ideas about uh, uh, colonizing Africa. But this time, colonizing them through capitalism uh, and actually accelerating capitalism. So many of them would have been involved in creating one war here, one war there, and uh, dividing this country and that country. And the ANC's um, ability to unite uh, the leadership across Africa became the real frustration. Um, mm. uh, and in fact, in the 70s, the battle against the um, a healthy ANC was escalated. Mm. It was also escalated in Quito Kunafa. So in 1987, it had been, uh, I don't remember if it was 12 or 10 years, that that battle about killing the ANC um, mm. was going on. And finally, the apartheid government also resolved that we must go into Angola and finally deal with that ANC uh, the ANC camps that were there. Mm. Um, we must uh, deal with the Cubans. Now, those who were there at the time say uh, the survival of the ANC depended on um, the Soviet Union and uh, Cuba. Mm. I am told that uh, in the Battle of Kutokunoval, there would have been um battles that were fought but the cubans retrained all the soldiers mm. uh, you you had the people's liberation army of namibia their plan was mm. there you had the uh, umkonto were there mm. you had uh, some of the angolan uh, forces from the government there okay, you yeah. had uh, 
Yeah, you had reinforcements coming from um, Mozambique. Mm. Uh, you had Russians providing uh, support, tactical as well as technical. And then you also had uh, uh, the Cubans mm. uh, providing manpower, uh, arms, mm. as well as uh, technical and tactical support. They retrained people in those spaces for them to be able to be ready for the enemy that was there. Um, that's the, the battle that led to um, Namibia being given their independence from South Africa. It was called Southwest Country at the time. And hmm. it was under the administration of the South African government together with um, some colonizers. Hmm. So the Battle of Kuitokuno Valley is significant because it also forced the five countries that were um, involved in Cold War hmm. uh, to come down to a table because the Cold War was fought through third world countries. Mm. Um, it was not necessarily a battle that uh, was Soviet Union fighting with Americans coming out exactly. with tanks bombing each other. No, they were using third proxy world war. countries. Yes, it was a proxy war largely fought uh, with third world, uh, in third world states uh, where uh, Americans would identify allies uh, who would uh, have their interests and protect those allies. I mean, it didn't happen only here. It also happened in countries like Chile, Argentina, and so on. Yeah. So you do have um, that coming to an end because of the Battle of Kutokunoval, mm. where the five countries had to sit down and uh, discuss how do they get out of uh, the apartheid mess and how do they uh, take the world to world peace? That uh, the Cold War was becoming expensive. Mm. Uh, and the Russians had indicated that they were not going to negotiate with anyone until the situation of South Africa is resolved. Mm. So for Russia, that was their own uh, position to say uh, the Soviet Union is not going to negotiate anything until Africa, um, uh, the last country in the southern tip, gets their liberation uh, from all of you. Uh, if that does not happen, we are still engaged in the war. So the stakes were very high. Mm, 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 and mm, mm. because it was protracted and very expensive, I mean, a protracted battle is very expensive. Sun Tzu does say so. Mm. There had to be concessions, but when those concessions were made, there was also um, an embargo put on the agreements that were reached uh, in 1988. That embargo was put for 30 years. I think uh, now people do have access to um, documents from Quito Kunoval. They can uh, check for themselves what were the discussions, how did they uh, pursue the discussions. But the apartheid government uh, lost their position of continuing to uh, engage in the apartheid policies at the end of that battle and at the end of those uh, negotiations. Mm. Um, and so you you have you you have Porter resigning in 1989, 
Trisani coming back into the country after the unveiling of political organizations starting to mobilize for the Communist Party. Of course, he would have been the head of Umkonto uh, commander-in-chief of the army, chief commandant of the army. So, so you, you had a situation where, so what the apartheid government was looking for was an excuse to go to civil war. And Trizani uh, became the perfect uh, instrument for us to go to the civil war because they had lost any other and every other thing. Mm. Um, and when they killed him, it became um, a serious, serious uh, situation for South Africa. Um, on the day Krizani was killed, there was so much mobilization of uh, Umkonto Esizwe uh, soldiers. Many of them were still alive. Mm. Mm. They were ready to go to battle the following day. They were waiting for orders from the leadership. Mm. And uh, Nelson Mandela, being the father that he is, the advanced cadre of the ANC, an experienced comrade, uh, who himself was very brave, was jailed for his uh, bravery and uh, the ability to think about the people um, mm. and fight for them. Um, then had to go and, and speak on behalf of uh, all angry South Africans, the majority of whom were African in particular, like mm. in general. Um, even the white sections of uh, South Africa did not understand why would there be such a killing um, mm. when we are about to reach a breakthrough. So it was really um, the leadership of the ANC which was able to convince people not to take up arms. Mm. But it was clear that uh, this thing uh, had gone out of hand. And some of the people who did not actually uh, belong to the ANC and believe in what the ANC was saying after the death of Chris and he found excuses to go and bomb uh, people in, in, in restaurants, in churches, or shoot at them in churches. And mm. it, was, it was the leadership that was provided at the time, which was consistent mm. with all the teachings that we had received anyway. Mm. Um, that I mean, to some of us, we still admire the period. Because remember, as I said, the 90s were very rough. Um, we, we became part of the leadership uh, from the early 90s. And throughout that period, uh, we had to explain and explain and explain to our constituencies. We, we had a student body as one of the biggest and most dangerous constituencies. And we had to explain what was happening. And it was because of the leadership that the ANC provided at the time that we were able to survive um, all of those experiences. And unfortunately, um, post the democratic era, uh, many of us who had uh, participated in the struggle uh, found it difficult to adjust to uh, the new South Africa.
Mm. Uh, remember, there are many comrades who did not receive counseling. Mm. Uh, many of us had to go on with school after the war. Mm. Uh, the ANC itself was not, uh, in as much as it claimed to be ready to govern, it did not uh, have the human resources as well as the policy um, um, the policy uh, gurus would assist the ANC in setting up a government. So many of the things that would have happened in government was on um, trial and error. And sometimes they were on a hit and miss. But right. the first five years, 1994 to 1999 became um, the great reconciliatory period. Mm. Um, and that reconciliatory period was a welcomed relief out of the violent experiences that we had had. Um, it was a welcomed relief because many of us would, uh, who were younger, would be yeah. able to go to school. We pretended to enjoy school, but uh, we were damaged anyway, but we have survived. Um, mm. That is what is important today. We have survived. Mm. Some of us who were able to really focus were also able to come back and play and play um, mm. a developmental roles within the structures of the NC in the community. Um, and those developmental roles uh, were both um, a learning care for us. They were educational, but they also uh, were, were responsible for us being able to get into certain spaces where we could really implement the policy. Mm. So, so that's that's the long and short of it. That. Mm. Uh, Today, we have the ANC that has uh, challenges. It's mm. because uh, moving from the colonial uh, state to um, where we are, where you have a democratic state, but we are dealing with the legacy of apartheid and colonialism, mm. where people were deprived um, economic participation because of their color, sex, mm -hmm. um, so you you have a lot of work to do. Sure. Um, sure. Just on that one, Fred. Um, yeah. Because yeah, now we're getting into governance and, and, and uh, the challenges of, of power once you have it. You know, once once apartheid is over. So I just want to yeah on this thing. So you know, Chris Harney was obviously assassinated, and one question is, you know, would things have been different? Would policies have been different? Had Chris Harney survived, would the SACP have played a stronger role? Uh, would things like nationalization have been uh, pushed further and maybe implemented on, in particular, relation to the mines if Chris Harney survived? Um, and, you know, we also can't ignore the, the other part to that. You know, we, we've just discussed, you know, the significance of the Soviet involvement, the Cuban involvement, the, 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 the socialist bloc's involvement. And... What, what do you think would have happened if, if the USSR had not collapsed? So if the, if the communist bloc had not gone through the, the, the counter-revolutions and, and, and all of the, the issues that it went through in, in the 19, from 1989 to 1991, um, if, we compare, if we combine both, if we say Chris Hardy survived and the USSR and the, the Western, uh, Eastern bloc didn't collapse, do you think 
the nationalization of the mines and and that kind of south africa would have emerged well uh, in relation to the nationalization of mines the anc took um, advice um and very important advice from other communist countries to say in fact nationalization would be more detrimental um one of the people who was vehemently opposed to the ANC doing nationalization the way the Cubans did it was Fidel Castro himself. So I cannot say uh, from where I'm sitting that Rizani would have been able to succeed in pursuing nationalization. But what I'm necessarily uh, also indicating is that the Soviet bloc fell apart because it became expensive to continue implementing um the socialist project the way it was being implemented and countries were coming out of their own national sovereignty became important at some point um but i also think that it was because imperialism had been um able to succeed through the globalization process um coca-cola was in every fridge the uh, children were wanted to eat McDonald's. Um, mm. And the ideas of society were necessarily changing on how you want to implement nationalization. But where I am sitting, South Africa would have done well if the ANC had implemented the National Bank. The mm. ANC had decided to say, no, we're bringing a National Development Bank that's going to operate uh like all the banks but over and above look at the developmental objectives of the firms that we have in south africa and on the basis of our nationalist ideas we will buy equity uh, in all of your companies in order to ensure that our goals of uh, labor intensive manufacturing and uh, participating in trade uh, around the world um, was done appropriately. The NC would have su- succeeded better. Mm. Uh, just a quick one there, Fred. You mentioned that you said Fidel Castro himself uh, recommended to not nationalize the mines in a similar or same fashion as the Cubans had done. That's what his recommendation to South Africa was? Yes, that was his recommendation. In fact, he did an example with Bacardi. Bacardi. Yeah, if you read uh, his book, My Life, uh, he makes an example with Bacardi. So Fidel Castro says uh, um, he lost a national asset because of how they chose to implement nationalization. Bacardi was uh, made by a certain family. It's a a family recipe. Mm -hmm. And that family recipe belongs to Cuba. But because they had implemented nationalization in the way of uh, taking that even what ordinary Cubans had owned, it became uh, easy for Americans to actually uh, get Bacardi. And Bacardi was no longer a national asset uh, of the Cubans. So he then cautioned that how you are going to implement nationalization, you must look at some of the things. And you may also um, uh, find strategic assets that you want to nationalize. But when you look, when you really get them into your hands, you find them that they are already empty shells that have been exhausted. So 
we must be able to choose carefully how we implement nationalization. The ANC did not have an appetite at the time to try and nationalize certain assets because it wanted to stabilize the country first. Yeah. And with the alliance, they did that. Yeah. Um, in hindsight, some of the um, the concessions that the ANC made, for instance, when the ANC arrived in government, there was a debt of uh, 452 billion, 10% of which was international. Uh, the ANC decided to restructure um, the fiscals mm -hmm. and actually pay off that debt. They if did not abide. Yes, they did not abandon uh, the repayment of the apartheid debt and say, no, it's not our problem. They were really thinking uh, about the money that belonged to the working class, um, which was uh, put there as, um, um, what do you call this, collateral mm. or security for the government being able to pay back the money. But the second thing is that the developmental objectives uh, became the first uh, priority for a democratic government. You could not leave people staying in shacks, in squalor, in poverty. Uh, so you had to start uh, reorganizing the country and making the country to work. But how we chose to do that, um, it's a matter that we can still correct if we are focused. Uh, which is what is leading to the current factions that you have. Right. Yeah. So let's 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 get into that one, Fred. Let's have the the, the final piece on where things are now. So we've covered obviously the the um, the democratic dispensation. We've discussed you know the, the end of apartheid. So yeah. Obviously, there's a twenty. Well, I've forgotten how many years it is now. But obviously, after 1984 until present day, there's a long. It's its own period of history. If in, in your own words. Where are things going to go with the ANC now um, in terms of the factions and in terms of the politics and the policies? Well, the ANC has always been faced with one enemy throughout its history. If you look at everything that has happened, um, the ANC was faced with uh, um, an enemy that wanted to divide it. And we have seen um, the divisions that have happened in the ANC had nothing to do with its ideological standing. The only ideological separation that the ANC had was uh, um, in the 50s, uh, when uh, those comrades identified themselves as Africanists and they were really opposed to uh, South Africa characterizing. Um, I mean, the ANC characterizing South Africa as belonging to all who live in it, black and white. That was the only ideological separation. Any other separation that happened was uh, necessarily based on egos. I don't like this one, I don't like that one. And that is what the ANC, at its formation, had to deal with. Egos. There was, yes, there was a battle in the leadership uh, in 1912. Um, when Mafuguzela was uh, elected, it was because he was not part of the discussions. He had gotten uh, into trouble with his transport and because he was not inside conference, those who were inside conference resolved that, no, let's rather elect uh, John Dube, John Langalibalele Dube. Uh, let's all agree that he will make a better uh, leader. Yeah. And that is 
what the ANC at all times must be able to do. But since 1997, and we were able to see this, we characterized it. We said for the first time uh, after unbanning, we are going to a conference where the leadership of the ANC is going to be elected based on identifiable uh, slates where people would lock themselves into we are going with this person and not that person. And we said that is going to cause a divisions in the ANC. Uh, but the group of uh, people who were arguing that we were very few. Uh, we were seen as people as uh, people who wanted Tabumbeki to really go on. Uh, even though we had advised that no, remove Tabumbeki and Jacob Zuma and get other people to be involved in the election uh, and really try to get the two factions to become one. Um, there, there were boiling tempers. There was nothing that we could uh, uh, do further. So, so what you see today, it's a manifestation of what happened in 2007, the Polokwane Conference. What it does is that it takes a, a new form and orientation based on uh, who is sitting where. And the pretense by uh, some of the people who are pursuing some of these uh, actions is that they are doing it for the organization. All of us have been taught in the organization. There will be preferences when we go to conference. But among other things that we discuss in conference is policies as well as resolutions. Mm -hmm. Out of the resolutions, we must have a program of action. And that program of action is what must unite the ANC. So after the leadership is elected, all of us must look at the program of action and ask, where are we? And once you do that, then you know that you have a responsibility to ask the leadership. You can ask uh, Comrade Cyril alone and then ask Comrade Ace alone. They are both in the leadership. They are elected into one national executive committee. Mm. Right? And you must then ask the national executive committee, hey, we have resolved at NASREC. This is what we said. Where are we on implementation? Mm. The program said this thing would be here on this year. That's how members of the ANC and society are supposed to look at the ANC. Of course, we have also behavioral patterns that uh, are characteristic of individualism, uh, where people decide to become corrupt. Corruption is the use of public office for private gain. Anyone who uh, does that, um, who uses public office for private gain, particularly where uh, finances and resources are involved, mm. we must become brutal against that person. Because all of us are focused on implementing the program of the ANC, the developmental agenda of the ANC, which at the end must take us to a united, non-racial, non-sexist, prosperous, democratic South Africa. Mm -hmm. Right? If we don't have a united, non-racial, non-sexist, democratic and prosperous South Africa, we're not doing anything. We don't have a reason to exist. 
Mm-hmm. Um, so, so that's where my perspective is in relation to what is happening currently. That our mm. eyes are off the ball. Mm. Uh, we are uh, talking about the uh, form, mm. and we have left matters of content. Mm. And these matters of content are the ones that must culminate into the program of action. So, so the more we entertain matters of form, we mm. are going to um, to decay slowly and slowly. We are not going to be able to advance any of the ideas that have made us to become a leader of society. We have yes, ended. No difference between between so i mean <clears throat> there are obviously two uh, famous or sort of two notable factions that have emerged you know the ramaphosa faction and um and then i suppose the uh, ace slash zuma faction do you think this so you're saying that the only difference between the two is a form a difference of form that in terms of content that both of these factions are the same no this is what i'm saying I'm saying the emergence of those factions uh, came from uh, the 2007 Polokwane conference where Zuma uh, became um, the president of the ANC. Mm. And I'm saying the enemy that the ANC is facing currently is the enemy that uh, is working tirelessly to divide the ANC. So the manifestation of this uh, and the characterization of these factions have to do with where one is standing in relation to the project to divide the ANC. That the ANC is supposed to be united by the policy decisions it takes, as well as the program of action it has to implement. In the absence of implementing uh, the program of action, uh, we as members we become like uh, football fans. Mm. Uh, Chiefs plays better than Orlando Pirates or Arsenal plays better than uh, Manchester United. That's the form. Those are the teams that play uh, football. Mm. Right? But the content in the ANC is supposed to be about how do we arrive at the strategic objective of the United Non-Racial Non-Sexist Democratic and Prosperous South Africa. Uh, on the economy. Uh, what is it that we are supposed to be implementing according to the program? And we're basing these things on what we call the five terrains of struggle, uh, which is the state, the economy, ideology, organization, and the international terrain. That if we can master uh, those five terrains of struggle, we would have the international community having policies that gravitate against the development of South Africans because we are not playing in that space. Uh, if we are not dealing with the issues of uh, ideas, our ideological orientation tells us that we should be building a non-racial South Africa. You would be having people who have ideas of in actual fact they're taking all whites to the sea, they must be in their ships and they must go back to Europe. Where in Europe, we don't know. <laughs> so, so the ANC is supposed to be um, at the center of the program of developing not only South Africa. Our international interests are to have a united Africa as well and a peaceful uh, uh, world. 
Um, we can't have a peaceful world uh, when we are not playing our role both as the uh, liberation movement and as well as the state. So these factions um, are not based on any ideological or um, on any content matters of the ANC. They are based on uh, somebody loving somebody and somebody loving the other person and the other person feeling that that one betrayed this one. Um, in that way, we will not be able to unite the organization. So we must come back and focus on the program. Mm. What is the program of action taking us to? We must be able to evaluate social policy, uh, including uh, the political pronouncements that have to happen for certain uh, policy shifts to take place. Mm. Uh, we are currently discussing um, the matter of expropriation of land without compensation. Mm. Um, we are supposed to be dealing with the issue of the National Bank. So those are the things that we really must be focusing on. Um, mm. The term of office for the NEC is only five years. We must do an evaluation. We may want to elect certain people back into the NEC or elect new ones, but all of those things are based upon the policy direction, the tasks facing the organization, as well as uh, the resolutions we adopt and the program of action. I see. That is what we so should I, be focusing on. I see. Uh, I see. So you see the uh, the current contest is predominantly a problem because of course it focuses on form it turns it into a factionism based on personalities on egos and that the content is not necessarily that, that the main discussion and in, in a way this is making the ANC lot focused on its um, each branch each individual each section of the party can't really focus on what job they have or what role they can fill in, in implementing the, the the grander plans and policies um, so once, I mean, do you see an end in sight for the current uh, phase, as, as you've described it, sort of the, 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 the focus on form over content? Do you see an end with that phase coming soon, the 2007 to the present moment? Is that coming to an end? Well, let me say this. There will always be uh, dynamics in the organization. There will always be tactical positions that people take. Uh, some of those tactical positions will be different from what others take. Um, for us, the most important thing is what we have resolved at conference and how what we have resolved gets implemented. That the base, that's the basis uh, which we, we then look at the leadership because the leadership is selected as a, as a collective. Uh, the ANC does not have Superman. Mm -hmm. You see, we don't have Rambo, uh, John Rambo going to, to Vietnam to release uh, pris prisoners of war. Yeah. The ANC, when you get elected, you get elected uh, in a group. Collective leadership, yeah. Yes, and all of you uh, must work together. We don't elect you because you like one another. We elect you because we have uh, policies, we have resolutions, we have the program of action. Uh, there are tasks that you must perform and you must report. So, if we were to follow that strict route where we evaluate the leadership, not individuals, the leadership of the organization, 
and we evaluate as far as our policies of our consent what did you implement and we evaluate as far as our program of action is informed what did you implement then we will be on the right path we will not uh, be worried i mean there will always be differences of opinion we discuss them we take a decision the decision must be implemented mm. we are not in the anc to like or love one another we are in the anc to work for the people and we must work hard i like it i like it fred it's a good 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 uh you still there fred yeah i'm still here yes okay great no i think that's a a great point to finish on that you are still there to serve the people and you must work hard uh do you have any other final comments there fred uh well i i don't have my final comments all that i can say is thanks for the opportunity uh, mm. to really discuss i'm not the spokesperson of the anc <laughs> i'm just uh, sharing my views sure about sure. um uh, my participation in the organization for many years uh, that we have given our lives to this organization we can't abandon it now Mm. Um, for the sake of the love that we have for the people we are not going to sleep today and wake up tomorrow having changed against the ANC um, but the reality of the matter is there would be different dynamics at different points we must understand so thank you for this opportunity yeah. um, to, to discuss uh, some of the pertinent issues if mm. other opportunities uh, arise or are available I will be available to discuss mm. them. Absolutely. Thanks very much. I was going to say thank you very much, Fred, and, and uh, thank you for sharing everything. I mean, obviously, it's been a, a long journey we've gone from from the 1980s until till the present time. Um, I, I definitely would like to have you on again to discuss. I mean, certain things we should definitely go over, perhaps the, the Maracana incident, um, and then, of course, going a bit more into depth, things like the EFF uh, and things, more modern trends. And then maybe a few months from now, we can discuss whether... Uh, the current phase is, is over and where you see the future as well. And then also uh, perhaps the relationship to China and, and things like that in Africa and uh, South African development particularly. But uh, thank you so much for, thank you so much for sharing with us. Thanks very much. Brilliant. And that is it for this episode of the Marxist Think Tank. Catch us every other week here on SoundCloud. To allow us for our reporting and our content to remain independent, please consider donating to our Patreon and becoming a voting member in the link down below in the description. If you have a news tip or would like to talk to us, please email admin at marxistthinktank.org. Our editor is Sean Sanchez. News writer and producer is Reggie Truman. And I'm Oscar Bastille. Thank you for listening.